Welcome to Inside the Sports Car Paddock for the week of June 3rd. We start off as usual with our friend Jeff Brown, race engineer for the Core Auto Sport IMSA DPI team. The main topic today, and it's a bit of a long one, bit of a hopefully fun and interesting conversation, is how to turn driver feedback into usable changes. So this is all coming from the race engineer's perspective. How do you take what a driver says they want, what they're feeling, maybe what they think they're feeling, but maybe aren't? Is there a certain shorthand that can be used between drivers and engineers that have a history? Is that something that is a new engineer or maybe even a veteran engineer with a new driver? Something that you really need to develop to get the most out of the relationship. We also get into when things don't necessarily work out in a favorable way in terms of the driver being able to give useful feedback to the engineer. So interesting conversation as always with Jeff. That leads off. Then we move to a conversation held between Brendan Hartley, he of brand new Toyota factory LMP1 hybrid effort, and Stephen Kilby, young Jedi from DailySportsCar.com. After that, we move into a conversation between Graham Goodwin, editor of DailySportsCar.com, with Pascal and Linden, team principal for the Porsche Factory GT effort. And then we close with GG once again, this time with Oliver Jarvis, factory Mazda driver who is a part of the Risi Competizione Le Mans program in their Ferrari. And they also get into a little bit of Ollie's Mazda effort here in the United States in DPI. So all of this brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers with a running order of Jeff Brown, then moving to Brendan Hartley, Pascal's or Linden, and closing with our good friend, Oliver Jarvis, all here on Inside the Sports Car Paddock, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Jeff Brown, it is time for you to make us smarter. It's my favorite part of every week's Inside the Sports Car Paddock, and that's where you... Thanks to our listeners who send in ideas, things they'd like to know about, learn about from the race engineering side, strategy side, technology side. Say, hey, could you guys talk about this thing? So what's the thing we're going to talk about this week, my friend? Well, um, we got a great question about um, race engineering and how how the, a race engineer decides what to change. Uh, people have seen, you know, or understand the, the cars enough. Our, our listeners are pretty smart and they, you know, they know that there's hundreds uh, of things that we can change on the car to make it handle differently or to potentially fix a problem that the, the driver has. But the question was, how do I pick? How do I, you know, if it's handling one way, how do I pick uh, one thing over another, over another, over all the things we have stacked up. So, um, you know, we can delve into that. Maybe you can ask me a few, uh, you know, tee it up. So, uh, because that's a broad question. It's like, it's not easy. And that's why it's a great question. Well, we need to set an environment first. And this might actually be a perfect opportunity to say this would definitely be a two-parter because the difference between a road course and an oval is just night and day in how one might treat uh, the same complaint from a driver, knowing that on an oval, whether it's cross weight or just so many things that you would you would attack differently, knowing that we're talking about specifically going left. So why don't we start with what I believe would be the 
main area of interest, knowing that hopefully some of our listeners are amateur drivers and or coming up the uh, the ladder, whether it's in sports cars or open wheel, whatever it might be in the engineering side. So let's choose a road course as the place to try and dissect what a driver would be asking for. Is there a, a track that comes to mind, you think, Jeff, that most folks would be familiar with where we might actually analyze, use some of those corners to analyze? Yeah, I think, um, well, I think that's a good way of starting with a, with picking a track. And maybe what I could do, let's just use, okay, so the one deepest in my mind is Detroit because I just got back from Detroit last night. Um, and, and maybe the way to start is how, how I approach it on a big, broad sense because we do have – a setup sheet. My setup sheet for our Nissan DPI is, I don't know, I haven't added up the number of cells, but there are lot, there's probably 150 different setup items that are specified on my setup sheet um, from what the brake blanking is on the left front inner brake duct <laughs> to what, you know, that's that specific to what the wing angle is on the flap to um, every, all six gears to the diff ramps to the preload in the diff to the shock valving on the low speed bump valve um, to the settings on all of that. So, so a lot, 150 different things. Well, why don't so, we do this? Cause there are, there are at Detroit, although it's a street course, I think we can pick some areas there that would translate easily to a mid Ohio, a, uh, WeatherTech Raceway, Laguna Seca, we could probably find a lot of commonalities here. Maybe the first one that comes to mind, Jeff, is turn three at Detroit, which is after you pass the pits, you make the quick right left, you make the little jump over turn two there, then you head down a long straight, long, long straight top gear and brake very hard in a straight line and make a right, a very slow right-hand corner, uh, effectively you know, I don't want to say walking speed, but it's a fairly classic, call it 90-degree <laughs> corner. So you go from this high-speed dynamic, shut everything down under hard braking, turn right, have to be very precise on turn-in point, and then this 90-degree corner, again, depending on which class and whatnot, we're talking second gear, maybe third. But let's talk about a driver coming into that saying, either I have understeer on turn-in, I have oversteer uh, coming off the corner, paint that picture of, of some of the complaints you might hear at, say, a, a classic corner like that, and what th- some things might come to mind for you on what you would change. Okay, yep, that's a great example. So the, the, the thing that I think all of us race engineers do is we, we know we're going to Detroit. We know turn three is going to be a corner that always gives us problems because we know that from history so before we even get to the racetrack the weeks you know people always hear about what do you do to get ready for a race or race engineers say i'm prepping for a race well here's some of the things that we do and it's to narrow those 150 choices down to three or four so we know i knew a week ago turn three that you described was going to be a a a corner that was going to give us trouble because you're coming from 170 miles an hour down to 50 miles an hour and it's bumpy while you're trying to do it and and turn into the corner it's going to be difficult so what do we do we've gone through some simulation stuff that kind of 
you know, I've taken a guess and I said, well, maybe we could soften the springs. Maybe we could run more downforce. Maybe we could do this three or four or five different things that I think might work. We run those in the simulation and maybe we throw out two. Yeah, those two didn't really look good in the simulation. So now we have three, maybe four things. Then we go to looking at um, how quickly we could change each one of those. And maybe one of those changes that looks pretty good is a 20-minute change. Well, we're not going to do that in this session. So we throw that one out. Now we're down to two changes. And so the driver goes out. He says, like you said, understeer. I turn the steering wheel, understeer, immediate understeer. How do I decide what to do? Well, I have a couple things um, a couple changes that could help that. And you get down to talking to the driver about the degree of the problem. You know, is it a massive, massive understeer? The minute you turn the steering wheel, it just takes off. You know, Jeff, one thing that might be interesting just to throw in here, which we might carry forward, is I know every race engineer has a different way of polling their driver on rating the problem some do have an actual rating system one to six one to three one to five hundred uh or it could just be verbal what's your preferred method of having your driver quantify the problem they're talking about yeah that's a really good question and and what I've, I've always done is i will adapt to the driver's system you know some of them are like you said one to ten um and then it's like, what is, you know, what is, is 10 bad or is 10 good? You know, I'm old enough to think that, uh, to use the old, what I call the Boderic system that, uh, 10 Boderic was a 10. So that's good. And so 10 is good. Zero is bad. Interesting. But other people do it differently. <laughs> yeah. Or, um, you know, I, I like to, uh, or the Stephen Wright joke, you know, okay, on a scale from one to 10, with six being the highest, how was it? <laughs> so and anyway, um, I adapt to whatever the drivers use, but um, fortunately, the driver I have now, uh, him and I have been working together for a long time. Colin and I have been obviously uh, working together since he first jumped in a go-kart when he was three. And so his system is one to five, and and... And we use, we'll actually use a point system like one to five. So he might say, oh, it's a, and his is the higher the number, the worse it is. So the understeer is a five. That's really bad. And then I might make a change and he'll go out and he goes, he might say, okay, you reduce the understeer one point or you reduce the understeer two points. So we kind of, that's a good way to quantify the, the, change we also quantify the grip of of the racetrack or specific corners in the same way you know it rained overnight and he'll go out and he'll say man the track lost two points of grip Mm. that means something to me you know or boy turn you know turn three is a, a whole point has one point more grip than turn seven and you know so it it gives me a feel for the amount of change I need to do and also how much it helped. So maybe we do a change that he's looking for more front grip. I make it. He says, he, he, he says, okay, that was a one point change. And I'm like, and if he said it was a two before and I made a one point change, 
I know I'm only up to a three, you know, or down the other way. Sorry, I'm, I've reduced it one. I still need to go further. So I know how many, how, how much it is rather than a driver coming and go, oh, my God, I can't turn the steering wheel. It's going to hit the wall. You know, is that really is it just scary or is he really describing it? So I need a driver that can give me specifics so I can pick one of these changes that I have pre-programmed that's not too much or too little to try to get the right amount. Or if I'm going to make a ride height change, you know, do I go, am I talking a three millimeter ride height change or a 10 millimeter ride height change to try to get the car balanced? So when it gets right down to it, the, the thing that helps me in a, during a session, the thing that's the most important, how, I, how do I decide what to change <clears throat> is the driver's feedback. Um, it, it points me in a direction. A lot of drivers can give you a good general direction. It understeers in turn three at Detroit. Okay. Well, that's helpful in, in some, you know, at least I know it's not oversteering, but a driver that can say it understeers the minute I turn the steering wheel, that probably eliminates 20 of the items I could have tried. And if a driver says the minute I turn the steering wheel, it understeers, and it just feels like the front's too stiff. Okay, now I've eliminated another percentage of the things I could try. Then if he says, it, and it feels too stiff, but in the middle of the corner, it, it feels okay. It feels like I need that much platform. Well, now I've eliminated even some more things, and now we're narrowing it down to something that dynamically affects the stiffness of the car. And then he, and then we, so we're kind of homing in on the shocks maybe because that's what affects the dynamic movement of the car. And then I might ask a question thinking that, okay, maybe the shocks are too stiff because he's kind of led me in that direction. And I'll say, how is it in the bumps and over the curbs? And you'll say, man, it just, yeah, that's also really jarring in the bumps and, and the curbs really upset it. And I'm like, okay, we're probably too stiff on the shocks. And then I've kind of worked my, his comments and my kind of probing and we've eliminated, you know, 30 or 40 things I could try down to try to five things, maybe the adjustments on the shocks. Then I got to pick which one I think is best from there. But it's, it's simply a guessing game. It's not as scientific as a lot of people would like to, to make it like there's a, a formula for it. It's, it's a it's an investigative guessing game and and you have to pull in all the factors and inputs that you have like driver um, we can sometimes use some data quickly uh, especially if we have a problem that we're fighting Detroit's a great example understeer 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 low grip um, and so we we're fighting this on a, a continual basis and my uh, Tyler Neff, my data guy and junior engineer, can start to look at some things while the car's out making a run, and he can say, well, the ride height did this, or the shock velocities were this when we made this change, and we can start to piece some of that together with what the driver is telling us. So it's a big, it's a big uh, detective um, mission. You know, another thing, Jeff, that definitely needs to be acknowledged in terms of this investigative effort is also getting a feel for what 
each driver likes or needs to go fast. And I know that I mention this on a regular basis in whatever topic we are on. This particular topic today, though, really is driven by this. So if I'm just talking in generalizations, I know that if I am engineering, working with a driver who is either recently out of go-karts or is still heavily active in go-kart, known as being you know, a frontline butt-kicking cart driver, I've yet to meet a carter who comes into open-wheel or sports cars who likes, a, likes their car to be very soft and malleable and rolling all around. It's usually the exact opposite. They're mm-hmm. so accustomed to stiff, whatever stiff is, quadruple that, and then add another 10 rounds of stiffness on top of it because that's what you get in karting and you get accustomed to speed being related to stiffness. And so just style-wise, right. if we're talking about a driver blasting down this long straight, braking, and then needing to turn into the slow 90-degree right-hander, this driver most likely is not going to want a car that is super wallowing and just rolling all over the place. Flip that around and say, I know we're, if we use your Nissan on-road DPI as an example, if we have someone coming out of touring cars, uh, even GT cars as well, stepping up to a prototype, most likely, not always, but most likely, you're going to get someone who is probably more comfortable much more comfortable with a car that is moving and rolling a bit. And uh, you might have to, in order to make them happy, uh, continue to go more in that direction. So just knowing that, you know, I don't want to say the worst scenario, but uh, potentially the worst driver combo in sports cars is the guy who's fresh out of karting, who loves a car with a trillion pound springs and someone else who wants five pound springs. And you go, <laughs> oh man, uh, could I give you two different cars to drive? So instead of driver change, you're just going to roll out two different cars. Two different cars. I, I don't know how I'm going to make the two of you happy, but maybe just share with folks. And I know we're painting some generalisms here, but sure. in this turn three example, I mean, if you've got two drivers at polar ends of the uh, like standpoint of what they feel from that steering wheel when they start to turn in. I mean, that's honestly probably one of the, the tougher jobs you can have to try and make both happy and find speed. Right. It, it, it's what, it's what I, some people, some race engineers that come out of IndyCar or um, some place where they have just one driver to, to make happy uh, find frustrating in sports car racing is the fact that you have two, three and, oftentimes four drivers to to kind of compromise your setup for and it's what i like i think it's a challenge i I enjoy that part of it and and the closer your drivers are to to their likes the better it is um i'm i'm fortunate in that colin and john bennett our car owner have worked together for so long now that and John being the, you know, the semi-pro um, gentleman driver has learned a lot from Colin. And, and so by natural extension, he, he likes what Colin likes because he's learned to drive from Colin, Colin setups. So for me, it's, it's a little bit easier um, in this case. But I've had, you know, we, we bring in Roma Dumas for the long races and Loic Duval for Daytona. And it's, we got three serious pros there and I got to make it work. And so how do we do it? The good thing about it is the more pro 
these guys are, the less, the further they are from being just raw out of carts, as you described, the more they just, they can adapt to what is quickest. So the guy who likes the super stiff car, if his, we make a setup change and the other drivers go faster with it, he's just going to figure it out because he knows it's quicker. And so the, the, the karting guys that come in and they just want stiff, stiff, stiff all the time quickly change their tune when they get beat by a guy who has a, a softer car that's making more grip. And they learn to, to feel that grip and, and, and kind of ignore the movement that they get with it because they know the grip's out there. Once it takes its set or once it moves and gets there, there's more grip. The tire's not sliding. So, you know, there's nothing like getting beat for uh, changing your, your theory on what you like by somebody who tried something different and was quicker. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge for the race engineer, and it's something, as I think the big thing you pointed out there was you have to adapt it to the driver. It's not... Um, and that's why, what do I pick to change back to the primary subject? What I pick to change is what's going to give the driver what he wants. Because I always know that if, if I got these pro drivers, if I make the car feel the way they want it to feel, they'll go as fast as they can until that point, they're being held back because the car's not doing what they want it to do. Does every driver want the car to do the exact same thing? No. And that's where the race engineer has to have his list of things that he can change to make the car feel better. We're really not, you know, in the middle of a session, we're not trying to make it faster, like on a simulator or make it faster theoretically or make it faster on what the seven post rig should say should make more grip. I'm trying to make it faster by making it do what the driver wants it to do so he can drive it faster. And that's a subtle, seems like a subtle difference, but that's that's a very big point is got to unlock the, the process so that he can drive it at his quickest ability. And that's, you know, um, it'll be different. It'll be different for every driver in, in the same exact car. So with that said, And that does point out a a really fine general thing for young engineers and and driver slash engineers to think about. While the conversation we're having now is indeed technical, it's really about stripping back the metal bits and pieces mindset. You go, okay, I've got a lot of things I could possibly change. In theory, if I change this, it will help. In theory, if I change that, it will help there's kind of a keen recognition of what your driver needs or wants to be able to go fast. So when you, when we talk about this turn three dynamic high speed braking straight line, turn in classic 90 degree corner, slow, uh, as you said, you enter at 170, you might get through there at 50, just you know, shedding 120 miles an hour to go through a corner tells us, this is a big change in overall vehicle dynamics taking place in order for this to happen. You might have drivers that are highly attuned to a variety of things who can tell you, 
you know, uh, from a roll standpoint, it feels like there's too much stiffness and or it feels like the front tires are uncoupled. Uh, they, you might hear, gosh, I just turn the steering wheel and the thing just begins to slide. You might think that maybe it is spring. Maybe we are not as we are turning right and the left front is compressing and we have some um, cross uh, vehicle forces being loaded as well maybe there's just too much springing resistance and it is not allowing the tire to comply with the ground and it just makes the whole thing skid and slide uh, mm-hmm. slightly obviously but causing that understeer dynamic it could be overinflation of a tire it could be you know, again there are a lot of things to pick and choose from but if you are able to figure out this is the detective part that jeff mentioned the investigative part if you're able to start to get a feel for your driver and what they like, what they want. Some are big anti-roll bar people. I <laughs> want it the size of a frickin', you know, uh, of a uh, of a manhole cover. And that's the thing that I love. Boy, just, you know, anti-roll stiffness is what I like to make a car perform. Others, again, it could be super stiff springs, softer springs. Uh, you can't really accommodate tire pressure too heavily to driver needs because the tire itself is going to tell you what it needs to perform Uh, there is a fairly tight realm of pressure up or down that's going to make the tire live but regardless uh, there's a number of things that you can change as jeff has mentioned to try and combat this turn in understeer but it's not just the vehicle it's not just what the vehicle wants it's what the driver needs to make the vehicle perform and that is again it's the non-numerical you know they can tell you it's a three the the track grip here is up one point or whatever great right it's just those are points of feedback that allow you to say okay of my many options what do i need to find that's going to make the driver happy and it's thinking driver first not necessarily car right exactly and that's why I think we, you know, everybody that follows racing uh, understands and that the driver engineer relationship they always talk about. It's it's why is that important? Exactly what we've talked about. It it relates, you know, if the engineer understands what the driver is saying and what he needs, he again, it's it's more it's a lot of that human relationship where uh, you know, why did Jimmy Johnson and Chad Canals have the the success they have why i mean most recently you know we're seeing what did i i read your reports about uh simon pagino and ben brentman they've been together for what 10 years or something like that and you know ryan hunter ray with ray those guys have been together for a long time it's it's the reason is is because you just get better and better and better at understanding each other and we can pick the changes i can pick a change for colin with the first three words of a sentence i know which direction i'm going it, it, between the three changes that i had preset for for a certain problem because you can almost hear it in his voice and and yeah we have we have almost stopped using his scale in super detail because i just know how much he needs and how bad it is and i just understand him after working with him for so many years and that's why those driver engineer relationships 
are so important and get so successful because you've you've taken the soft science of race engineering and made it very regimented and very detailed and very precise where it's generally super imprecise when you get a new driver engineer combination i'm feeling like i need to mention and we need to mention sometimes we start off with a specific topic in mind and (laughs) then there's this little thing called scope creep where you kind of creep off topic a little bit and i feel like we've done that here not because we're bad people but maybe because we're realizing that in the midst of this conversation it's not as simple as i come into this corner and the car does this what should i do to change that so maybe and i'll just again throw this out as as a suggestion uh for you dear listeners maybe there's a list of questions to send in uh, either to me on Twitter, Jeff on Twitter, or the two of us on Facebook that says, hey, let me paint a picture. I'd love to see if you could help me solve uh, on the topic of getting feedback from a driver. Again, maybe you are that driver of, you know, turn seven at Portland. Uh, I'm driving this kind of car and it's doing this thing. Any suggestions on what I might look at? Because we can, again, we can paint a lot of different options here. So let's say we have turn three at Detroit corner off oversteer and it's consistent. What is that? Why? What things could we change to eliminate that? Well, again, we can certainly have that discussion and drill down into this. Then there's also the, uh, the connected aspect to that, Jeff, where you go. So do I make a change that fixes corner off oversteer and turn three? but possibly exacerbate some other ill handling trait somewhere else on the track. How many other exactly. quote turn threes are there at Detroit? Are there, you know, is there one or two of them with that same dynamic of corner to replicate the same thing? Okay. Well then I've, I'm having this problem at two spots on the track, maybe three. So maybe that's something worth looking at, but is, is it only kind of a, you know, in one or two spots, well, maybe, okay. Um, let's think about some bigger picture stuff. Are there corners, are there similar corners where I'm having an issue where I could say there's three or four corners like that? Aha, well, that's definitely something we're going to try and change first than maybe just trying to ace corner exit, turn three, knowing that really it's a little bit of an outlier in terms of overall lap time and performance. So, like every aspect of engineering, Jeff, this stuff is not linear. There's so many variables to factor in. But again, maybe maybe being driven with some questions from folks saying, hey, all right, guys, try and solve this, at least in a road course dynamic, knowing we still have ovals to get to. <laughs> yeah, it's um, I, I think we kind of we might have it might have seemed like we deviated. But the I think the surprising thing that people will understand here is that the question was, how do we decide what to change? Um, we decide with the driver. And it's I think the, I think people were a lot of people were would expect, well, we look at this data point and we look at this trace on the uh, on the MoTeC data and we look at this uh, result from the shaker rig and we look at this simulation thing when the driver says this and we just do this next thing. And it's much, much different from that. It is deciding what to change is like the, it's, it's like, 
um, I suppose it's, uh, I use this football examples a lot, but it's, uh, I suppose it's like a coach deciding what play to call. Well, I mean, down, distance, uh, score, time left in the game, those are all factors he knows about. But then there's the soft part of it, like, hey, that coverage looked a little different, or my quarterback's been playing really good here in this situation, and my receivers got a bum knee, and da 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 All these factors come in, and suddenly the right call comes to him in his mind. And that's very similar to the way a race engineer works um, during a session in, in, in pit lane. And so deciding is, I, I bet it surpri- will surprise a few people on how that, how those decisions are made. It's not quite as scientific as, as we would like to think. Why don't we close on this aspect? I always love getting into a little bit of the dirt behind the stuff too, because as black and white mechanical and whatever linear as engineering might seem uh, to some, there's just some truths that are not always self-evident. Um, mm-hmm. So you mentioned the football dynamic. So in a perfect scenario, your favorite team, the New England Patriots, uh, and I think in just about every scenario, we will see head coach Bill Belichick and his quarterback Tom Brady discussing some sort of uh, key play. What are we going to call? So obviously there's just a lot of calls that are just sent right in. Brady executes them. That's great. But there's also whenever there's something really key about to happen or that needs to happen, you see dialogue go back and forth. What should we do? How should we handle this? That's based on respect. That's based on Absolutely. time, earned relationship, under, knowing that one another really has a, a high-level grasp of whatever it is that they need to go do. And so, again, therefore, there's mutual respect between the two. They come up with a plan, go forward. That dynamic is identical between a driver and engineer and in a Colin Brown, Jeff Brown dynamic, that's perfect. As you said, Colin doesn't need to say more than about three words. And it might be the words that help you to understand, I need to go in this direction on this change. It might right. be the tone of his voice, not the actual words. But, you know, uh, anyways, that's the shorthand. There's also situations where there's not that respect. And I can say, from as a former race engineer, there are some scenarios where I would get some very basic feedback from the driver and pretty much not listen to anything else he said because I couldn't trust him or did not think that he had the skills and ability to actually give detailed information that would help me. So it was very much a case of, okay, uh, can you confirm if this thing did or did not happen. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you tell me, did the car do more of this here, more of that there? And this would have been before, you know, tons of GoPros and all kinds of, of right. data to support this, but more of an analog engineering scenario. And I, again, I hate to say it, but it was strictly driven by a, I don't trust you. I mean, you mm-hmm. might be able to drive the car, but you are just really not part of the engineering loop in helping to make the vehicle better. And so, right. therefore, I'm just going to have to go my own way and hope that these, I don't want to say guess, but having to cut out the driver, which we've just yep. discussed how important they are in this right. loop, 
you have to work on experience a little bit having driven for you know raced formula fords and, and a little bit of sedan stuff for uh, just a couple of years but having driven myself having a bit of a clue as to what a car needs to do at these certain corners and and, and whatnot for my own feel why don't you, Jeff, if you could, and I won't ask you to name names, but uh, you've engineered a lot of drivers. Can you share some thoughts on scenarios where you go, I'm going to have to engineer the car and do the driver engineering aspect pretty much myself because I can't necessarily trust what this person's telling me to actually make us more competitive? Yeah. The first thing is when you were describing that, I was like, oh, I had to think back a while. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to run some really good drivers over the last, whatever, 10 years. and But I've had that situation that you described, and it brought back memories. And I, my first thing was like, oh, that's no fun. And it is not fun because you're just not on the same page. You're not clicking. You don't really understand what he's wants and and it could be my fault as much as as his fault sometimes it's a very new driver quick kid but doesn't really know much about setting up cars and and again i don't want and i don't think really any race engineers want another engineer to come in and tell them what to do hey it needs two more clicks a front low speed bump you know no we don't want that we want a driver that can describe what the car is doing very accurately and that's not good enough there describe what it's doing very accurately and then tell us what he wants it to do differently. And if we can get that, we'll be on to the next change and we'll make the car better. Drivers that you, as you said, Marshall, that you don't respect to give you that information or they're giving you information and you're just like, no, you, you know instantly that that's wrong. He's making it up. He's trying to impress you. He's trying to make it sound like he knows what he's talking about and he doesn't and that doesn't mean you don't respect them as drivers just don't respect them in terms of their ability to actually help you in making the vehicle better right and there's some really really quick drivers that just aren't good at giving good feedback and and, and again it doesn't have to be detailed i almost i've had younger drivers who try too hard on that they think they have to come in and give this you know, three paragraph dissertation on what it's doing, you know, foot by foot in the corner with all sorts of engineering language and stuff like that. I don't, I don't really want that. What I want is just try to make me feel what you're feeling and then tell me what you don't like about that. What, what is the feel you don't like? And so the more, the less engineering, the better for me. It's like, you know, I turn in the corner and the thing feels like it's going to, the back feels like it's going to slide. And then it seems like it grips into the corner and then the back kind of moves again. And then it grips again and moves again. I just don't like that. I wish it would just either slide or grip the whole time. I mean, that seems really like, well, that's pretty basic. That is an awesome explanation for me. Something very unengineering like that. But if I don't get that from a driver, um, I have to revert to some other things. The driver then just becomes another engineering tool to me. And I'll take my best guess. I'll make a change. I won't tell them what the change is. You know, nowadays with the drivers that I have and the high level of drivers and the, and the mutual respect we have for each other and, and understanding is I'll make a change to the car 
and I'll tell the driver before he leaves pit lane what I expect it to do and how much of a change I expect it to be. Okay, this should solve that understeer you have in turn three at Detroit or should help it be better. I think it's going to be a pretty good change. The downside could be that right in the middle of the corner, the car gets way too pointy and it snaps loose. And I'll tell them that before they drive out of pit lane. A lot of engineers are like, oh, no, don't ever tell them that. You'll feed them with information that, they, um, that they're looking for, and they'll just come back and tell you what you just told them. True, a lot of drivers will do that. And if I have a driver I think will do that, I'm not going to tell them in advance. Sure. But if I have a driver that I've worked with a long time and I trust and we're working together, I want them to be aware, super sensitive to what I think the change is going to do, and then also be ready for what it's going to do so that they can either take advantage of it or prevent from getting in trouble because of it. And then they'll come back and say, ooh, you were right about the entry, but I never got that, that real sharpness in the, in the center and it never snapped loose. So, so now I'm already ready to go to the next step because he's, you know, we're, we're eliminating a lot of junk in the middle, you know, Hey, you're right on this, but this changed or whatever. So you get a driver that can't do that. And it just makes the process longer, more difficult, less productive. And how do I do it? You make a change and you get the feedback and you make another change and you get the feedback and it just takes three or four times as long and you don't, you don't get there as quick, but it's what you have to do. Um, and if I have a young driver or any driver that's interested in getting better at that, then it becomes a great learning opportunity and we'll talk about it and we'll discuss it. Why well, we made this change. Great example. I do some Ferrari challenge engineering and those drivers are beginning beginning drivers and we'll actually go testing what we call testing it's more practicing and you know how drivers driver coach other drivers well i engineer coach drivers okay i'm gonna pump the front tires up 10 pounds go out and drive a lap drive three laps i'll come in and okay what did it feel like wow i just understeered the front when i turned the steering wheel it wouldn't go where i wanted it to go okay here's why Here's now let's put that away and let's do the rears that way. Okay. Now let's try a a lot of wing and a little bit of wing. Tell me what it does. Okay. Here's why it does that. And you can educate the beginner driver on understanding the engineering concepts and how they affect the car. They become better at that, which allows them to tell me quicker and more precisely what's happening, which allows us to dial the car in quicker and beat everybody else. You know, I'll close uh, our conversation here, Jeff, with the polar opposite of the driver-engineer dynamic I just where we just discussed. So I think it was 2004 or so, maybe three, I don't know. I got a chance to engineer one of my heroes for a day, that being American Badass, Lamal winner, just you name it, uh, Davy Jones. And mm-hmm. so having grown up just worshiping at the uh, the talented feet of Davy Jones, was so stoked to get a chance. I got a call to come engineer him uh, in a Noble N400, I believe uh, it was, uh, at Thunder Hill for the day. And so I uh, was so pleased to do that. Uh, so anyways, 
definite like high water mark for me at the time like cool again just always love the guy and the flip side of the driver who is not a part of the engineering matrix whatsoever but can drive the wheels off of things the exact opposite of that is someone like davy jones who within one lap i found out again wasn't a surprise but found out like oh yes um the the talent of the driver not just on track producing lap time but actually from an engineering standpoint is so vastly superior to his engineer <laughs> i and i just refer to it as becoming uh the person at the mcdonald's drive through window that's really all i became for yep. the entire day davy would pit and say okay i'd like uh two clicks of this here i'd like three of those there and this and that with a medium diet pepsi and yes sir i'll get it right there you know and then the little clock behind me starts on how quickly i can deliver that through the uh, the drive-through window but uh, again it was awesome just in the ability for him to come in and say hey the car is doing this that and this here which i really don't like and i really think that if we were to make this change here go up on this 50 pounds click this twice there lower this a little bit here in the back uh, i really think that we would be able to fix those things great Uh, and not only did all those things add up in my head it just you talk about shortening things that that shorthand um it's really all it became was Davey on his way in coming down pit lane would say, you know, I really do think we're a little bit too heavy on uh, front high speed compression on the right front. Why don't we dial that back? I don't know. Let's, let's start with two clicks and let's see what that does. Great. Do the tire pressures check, you know, do everything else you normally do during a uh, quote pit stop. Um, Send him back out. Super happy. And I'd make little small adjustments of my own here, there just to keep things, you know in tune but honestly jeff it was just so phenomenal to be there with someone who was the driver but was also effectively the engineer and i can't think of a single thing all day long that davy wanted or called for that was wrong and didn't make the vehicle better uh and the high point of the day was him coming in saying "Ah," again i don't remember the exact thing but it, it was doing something somewhere that he just didn't care for and I could tell he was racking his brain for thoughts on what to do. Whatever it was that came to mind for me immediately, I said, hey, why don't we try this? And we tried it, and it was exactly what he needed. Right. And I'm just right. saying, it's one of those little happy dances you do, for me at least, knowing how much I, I revere I revere Davy and continue to revere Davy. But I, I actually felt more than just the guy standing in the mcdonald's drive through window right. <laughs> taking you know pressing buttons taking the order and trying to whip it out as quickly as i could that, that one moment where like hey you had an idea that wasn't dumb that and it worked, made things right. better so that's the well, other it's end a, it's, and you yeah. work with drivers like that too where you're like you know really oh, wow. i could probably just you just tell me and i'll just direct the guys but make it sound like i'm coming up with the ideas so folks don't ask why they're still paying me money so anyways that, that's maybe the the fun part too sometimes well it's it's learning from the from the drivers the you know what works what they like what they feel how they feel it and you know i've got a chance uh, to work with some you know pretty incredible drivers that 
uh, some of the fast ones are not good at that. Some of the not fast ones are incredible at feedback and describing what the car does and precisely what they, what they, what they like. Um, you know, I, I'm just thinking I worked with Ross Bentley, who's probably one of the best, if not the best driver coach around. And he's super good at describing what drivers should do in the corner and precise driving stuff. But that translates into him being very, very self-aware of what he's doing with all of his controls when he drives. And he helped me with understanding shocks tremendously because he was super accurate at telling me exactly what he was doing and why he was doing it and what he felt to make him want to do that. So, you know, you learn from a lot of different people um, as an engineer and it works both ways. And that's what's, you know, ultimately that's what's so fun about it. Jeff, thank you as always, my friend. Can't wait for next week discussion and we will uh, rock it out and whatever topic comes to mind then. Can't wait. We got a long list. I uh, hope people uh, give us some more ideas. We'll make it even longer and keep knocking them out. So, welcome to Inside the Sports Car Paddock, Brendan Hartley. I'm here sitting with him at a glorious stay at the mall. Um, and you're here, Brendan, in new gear. You're here in Toyota Gear in public for the first time. So, tell us, what's it been like so far? It's been great. And as you said, the weather's. Um, I think it's the hottest day I've had all year. I mean, anywhere I've been so I don't think it's going to last um, but it was it was a real pleasure hopping into the Toyota TSO 50 for the first time this morning around Le Mans um, quite clearly these these thousand horsepower four-wheel drive beasts are, are really made for Le Mans so I was was pretty excited to get my first laps behind the wheel um, the run plan was three time laps I was hoping that that would miraculously change on my third lap and they would let me do a few more but that wasn't the case, but I really did enjoy getting that first taste, and, and uh, wasn't quite enough. But um, it was, it felt good to be back on circuit de la Sarth and, and, and like I said, and back in these LMP1 cars. And yeah, the welcome's been very nice back into the WC paddock and uh, into Toyota. Um, I know all the all the drivers very well, uh, particularly Sebastian, who I actually lived with in the past for a few months. But no, it's been a really nice feeling. Um, it was a bit of a cruel first taste at Le Mans, knowing that I won't probably be driving uh, next week come, come come the race. But yeah, everything's everything's good, and I don't. I think I answered more than what you asked me, yeah. but I, I just keep no, talking. No. I can keep talking yeah. as well if you want. But no, before I ask you more about the car, um, tell me a little bit about how this came together. You you getting the, the opportunity to race with Toyota? Um, yeah, so I found out pretty late last year that I wouldn't be continuing with Toro Rosso in Formula One. Um, in fact, after the, the final round in Abu Dhabi, um, I mean, I always said I would like to come back to Le Mans. Um, you know, I didn't know it was going to be so soon. And then, yes, I, I contacted Toyota very, very quickly after. Um, you know, I, I knew I wouldn't be uh, in, in Formula One anymore, and as well as contacting others. And um, you know, at a certain point, it became. Um, knowing that there was a potential opportunity but it really wasn't until you know February March that that, that became a reality and, and uh, you know it, all you know my other contracts have been and very fair you know I still have a contract with with Porsche and, and and I disclosed that with them very very early on that I was looking to do Le Mans again in an LP1 car and yeah it's all really fallen together and 
in the best way that I could imagine. Uh, you know, at the end of last year, when when I, I knew I was out an F1 drive, I didn't know how things were going to plan out. But I, I think it's fair to say I've landed on my feet, and, and this was the, the best possible outcome I could think of. So before you came here, um, I was there at Spa, and you got your first taste of the car. Tell me a little bit about that experience, because um, they're. they're they're both both the P1 cars you've driven and P1 hybrids, but they're very different cars, aren't they, fundamentally? Yeah, so that that was um, a shakedown for, for parts. So we didn't have the correct tyres, and uh, we, we had quite a few limitations. We couldn't use kerbs, and but I still got 15, 20 laps in the car just to get used to the, the systems, the steering wheel, um, the, these... These modern LMP1 hybrid cars are very complicated, and, and uh, every car I've driven over the last four or five years has had completely different uh, driver manuals. So it, it was more just to get up to speed from that perspective. Um, but it, yeah, I felt right at home straight away. And like I said, you know, integration within the team feels good. It's going to take some time, obviously, to to get to know everyone. But um, yeah, it was a nice feeling jumping back in the car and. Obviously, Spa was was a nice place to do it. But like I say, I think today was was the you know the, the real first taste. Yeah, uh, albeit a little bit too short. <laughs> just, just how tangible of a difference is, is it behind the world as opposed to the Porsche? Um, I mean, a lot of things are obviously similar. You know, that they're, they're both thousand horsepower four-wheel drive uh, hybrids. Um, but yeah, the. I think after only doing three laps, I don't want to um, talk too much about all the all the differences. And I think they'll become more apparent when I actually get some some uh, you know more seat time in the car. Um, but yeah, of course, there are a lot of similarities. In the end, we were we were fighting neck and neck uh, as, as fierce competitors when I was in Porsche against against the Swider. So obviously, the stopwatch says that they're, they're quite similar. And, and I think even in the last two years, the Swider's even moved on uh, a few more steps. Interested to know what you think about the, the way that the two teams operate because I mean Porsche and Toyota have shown over the past few years in doing their WC programs that they both operate at very, very high professional standards, like some of the best that we've seen in world motors. Of course, yeah. How how are you finding it behind the scenes at Toyota so far? Yeah, some things are different. Um, some things are very similar. Again, I'm such a newbie that I don't want to I don't want to comment on all the all the differences because I, I haven't discovered all of them yet. Um, the driver area is, is, is different here. We have, we have a little uh, PlayStation set up with the, with the driving simulator, which I think occupies the, the driver's time <laughs> a lot more than what Extra we had. Sim time. Yeah, yeah. Which, which, which is which is good vantage between the drivers. But um, like you say, both both outfits are extremely professional. Um, and I, th- I think it's too early days for me to really see see differences. I've, you know, I've just been here a couple of days with the team shirt on, and uh, okay, today I'm I'm mainly watching and listening. And that's that's what will happen during the race week as well, so I can prepare as much as possible. But of course, a lot of the processes set in place are, are similar, and team structure and um, team spirit between the drivers, all that all that good stuff that I, that I love about endurance racing. And, um, yeah, I don't know how to comment more, so I don't really want to say it's different for this and, and, and that reason because I, I don't really know yet and I'm just trying to be careful with the words that I say. So what are your expectations for next season then at this early stage? Have you been monitoring? I mean, obviously you took part in a little bit of the WC season this year, but have you been monitoring it? What, what do you think it's going to be like next year? Um, I mean, expectation in terms of results, I've been asked about that. Obviously, on a personal level, I want to do the, the best job that I can every time I jump in the car and integrate within the team quickly. And, and obviously, race wins, a lot more win. World championships have to be the, you know, the, that's that's the target. But uh, that's obviously a team effort. And, and uh, first first goal is, is you know to get up to speed with the team and, and, and all those other things I just mentioned. Um, 
I have faith in the WEC that it's, it's going to continue to grow. Um, obviously, there's there's some talk of you know, some teams pulling out, and, and there's rumours of, of more teams uh, joining. So, um, you know, I think the, the draw of Le Mans is, is so big, and it's, it's such an exciting race that, that, that I'm sure things will turn around. And, and um, that's, uh, I'm very personally happy to be back in the WEC paddock, and, and uh, I think the future looks bright. Uh, I'll finish off by asking you about what's next in your timetable. Um, once you've finished here, obviously you've done for the day here, I believe. Um, what's next on your program, Toyota, in sort of preparations for next season? Um, okay, yeah. So um, actually, tomorrow I'm testing Formula E. Actually, <laughs> so <laughs> tomorrow. Busy boy. Yeah, um, and then I'm off to Canada, Montreal, for the Formula One race. So I'm, I'm, I'm keeping pretty busy, but. Um, um, in terms of uh, I'm back here during the race week and, and um, I'll be listening watching and I'm, st- I'm on standby uh, in case I need it I think things can happen obviously I don't wish anything bad upon anyone um, as much as I would love to be in the car I think it's fair to say that um, and then I think the testing season starts I don't remember the exact date uh, my wife takes care of my calendar and she'll tell me when, when the date arrives that I need to, to get ready to, to test the car again but um, it, it's in the next couple of months you I get guess. plenty of seat time before next season yes yeah. Yeah, yeah, there'll, be, there'll be enough seat time for me to get up to speak Pascal it's been a difficult few days for the GTE Pro Pack with uh, your colleagues at BMW and Ford finally coming forward with the decisions that we knew in the case of Ford we expected probably in terms of BMW tell me your thoughts now about where we are with WC you've won the world championship and congratulations for that but uh, where we are now in terms of moving forward for the coming season and beyond that. At the end, uh, in GTE, there was always an up and down with manufacturers. And um, to be a world championship, we need two brands, three brands. And next year, we'll have uh, three of the biggest brands on sports car with Ferrari, Porsche and Aston Martin. And um, at the end, it's still great battles. I'm sure with uh, all the BOP work, the last uh, races, and also in the IMSA, same. At the end, the racing is so close and it gives great races for the manufacturer and for the fans. So we are looking forward to it. Even if there are six cars only, but for Le Mans, again, will be a great event because the Corvette, I'm sure, they will try to join. And so I'm sure we'll have more than 10 cars in Le Mans last year, next year again. So into the end of this season, we've still got a driver's championship to be sorted. You can be fairly relaxed now, I guess, on the manufacturer front. What is the, what is the, the orders are clearly going to be come out and try to win this race? Tell me a little bit about the instructions that your drivers are going to have about them sorting out that final championship. At the end, uh, only our two cars, 91 and 92 crew, can be uh, can get the world championship for the driver title. And um, at the end, we'll be open racing. We told them we'll, there will be no team orders, as we said, all the season. So no team orders, because the title will go to Porsche, but it must be fair racing. They shouldn't touch them, because at the end, it's a long race. You want to arrive. So no tricks, nothing. It must be all transparent and a fair race for both of them. But I'm sure if you would ask uh, Car 92 as a bigger, bigger advantage, probably this is the Porsche which will take the less risk during the race. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be an interesting thing to kind of chat to the boys about uh, their kind of aspects on it. It's a great race for you guys last season. That set up this title run. I doubt in your career you can have come into a Le Mans ever as relaxed as this, but you've already got the, the title that matters, the Manufacturer's World title. You know that two of your guys are going to come away as, as GT World Champions. Porsche's first GT World Championship, yes. because it's obviously a very new title, joining Ricard Leitz 
um, as the previous champion before it was an FIGT championship. Um, tell us a little bit about your mindset coming here. This is an amazing field. Um, at the end, um, it was um, the year to win, as you say. It was there as up. We discussed there were up and down with a number of manufacturers. This was the up with uh, 10 cars fighting for the championship. It was a completely crazy championship. One of the best, I think, in the world with five manufacturers and uh, one of most of the best drivers of the world. And um, coming now to Le Mans, after having won already this championship, the mood in the team is so high than ever. So we just want to continue the strike and win, win again Le Mans. And um, we have two cars joining from the IMSA championship. There they are also winning many races also last year. Last year we had a bad summer in the championship. We cost us the championship. This year we had a high start. Hopefully we can co co come uh, smoothly through the summer. And so they are also uh, most motivated than ever. Look forward to next year or next season. We have yes. to keep reminding ourselves with the WEC. It is going to be a smaller grid without those uh, four competitor cars. Clearly, you're going to be looking to defend the titles that so you have won in the case of manufacturers. You will win in the case of the drivers. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the preparation, the mindset that goes into what will be a three manufacturer championship next time. At the end, I think looking at the battles, it will be as hard as with 10 cars because uh, the battles are so close. At the end, what we learned from uh, the 2017 season to 18-19 to the Super season is that you are not allowed to do any mistakes, do the right strategy call at the right moment, and that's what we brought with the World Ma Manufacturer title, and that's what we will continue doing, just looking at improving every details. Now, I'm not going to ask you to make any announcements, and you wouldn't do it if I asked you to anyway, but uh, we, we've seen... Uh, very different looking version of clearly the 911 RSR testing recently. Are we to expect anything by way of change in Porsche coming into the 2019-2020 season? I would say the surprise or the discussion will come on the press conference from Porsche AG on Friday afternoon at the race week. Excellent. Uh, Pascal, good luck for the coming week. It's a big week for Porsche, of course. Um, a world championship is no small thing. Uh, you know you've got a fan favourite car with the way that thing sounds um, and plenty of uh, customer interest as well GTM too, looking very good for you guys At GTM at the end we won 6 races out of 7 until now and uh, we are really proud of what our customers are doing some were like Project 1 who are leading the championship they were new of the championship coming from uh, the Cup and Super Cup since uh, 25 years with Porsche jumping in GTE and now leading the championship it's some right. start, isn't it? Yeah. It's some start. Um, it looks to me as if uh, GTE racing for the moment, despite the numbers maybe being uh, wrinkled with the manufacturers, the customer market's still pretty good. As um, the, um, all the manufacturers or all the customer, our customers are dreaming to come to Le Mans because it's one of the biggest races in the world. And uh, what, one, uh, what, uh, what is better to do it with your, a car which is close to your road car? So, Porsche RSR. Good stuff. For now, Pascal Tillinden, thank you very much for your time. Well, the cars at uh, the Le Mans test date, can the final hour uh, behind us in the Rizzi Competizione truck with, well, you, Rizzi Competizione driver, uh, and a man who's been very busy over the last 24 hours, Oliver Jarvis. Oliver, it's, it's perhaps not been the most successful test so far, but tell us a little bit about your day well, yesterday and today, really. Well, I guess it started with, uh, you know, Detroit, 
didn't have quite have the race we were hoping and then it was literally pack our bags jump on a plane and we, uh, we arrived in Le Mans about 7 o'clock this morning ready to go unfortunately we missed the first couple of hours of the session due to the fact that uh, the, the driver's briefing for the guys that arrived late was um, started at 10.15 when the session started at 9 so despite us all being here ready to go we weren't actually able to drive the car till after driver's briefing then we unfortunately we've had a small issue but uh, I just got 10 laps and absolutely loving it it's, it's great to be back in Le Mans really pleased to be in a, a GTE e-car as well and you know Ferrari with Rizzi is a you know, perfect combination you've got now I think ticking a box a very unusual set with LMP1 LMP2 DPI GT3 and now GTE drives to credit I mean um God, tell us how does that all compare? GTE particularly, the DPI yesterday, uh, it's an astonishing transition. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one actually because the cars are so different. Do you know what, I don't even think about it. I hadn't, hadn't even thought about the amount of cars I'd driven this year till you just said. But you, you know, I've jumped in the Ferrari here and naturally because it's a different car, just from the way you see it, the controls, that I don't expect it to behave like the DPI. You know, not, I'm still getting used to it. I'm still learning the nuances. And but so far, it's a great car. You know, it's definitely different to what I was used to in the LMP1 days. You know, the Porsche curves aren't quite as fast, and it, you know, it, it's a bit of a shock to see the guys come around the outside when I'm already on the limit. But uh, it's great fun so far. I'm really enjoying myself. Uh, it's a very different look to Rizzy Compatione. You've raced against them. Uh, you know, racing with them. It's blue car it looks actually really nice I mean it, it, I don't think the, the, uh, the images were seen on the internet before seeing the car literally in the paint um, do it justice no I completely agree I, I saw the images and I thought oh that, that looks nice and then you see it in person and the blue really stands out it's a different blue to, to what I think comes across in some of the images so car looks great and I think you know everyone associates Ferrari with red but it's also quite quite nice to be different and be the odd one out so hopefully people will be able to recognize us on track on track and um, you know be cheering for us very different looking driving squad here as we say got young Jules Gunon proud family heritage behind him another man coming out of GT3 racing to GT how's the trio gelling there yeah really well I mean Pippo I know from you know racing in IMSA never been teammates but raced against him Jules and myself have a, a great relationship weirdly we we sort of connected when I left Bentley, he took my seat. So I reached out and just said, you know, congrats. And we kind of stayed in contact through them. So a bit of a strange situation, but um, it's one of those nice things where, you know, I wished him all the best. You know, he's had a great season and you know, he did a stunning job, jumped straight in the car. And it's good to be in a car with him. You know, there's so many top GT3 drivers out there that quite honestly should be in Le Mans, doing Le Mans. Um, they're probably not looked at as much as they are, and I think Jules is going to surprise a lot of people. A few of those coming in with Vincent Abril uh, in one of the uh, the GTM cars as well. Maybe that'll be the next kind of little bit of a trend. Let's go back and talk a little bit about IMSA and about uh, the, the programme there. It's shown some flashes of brilliance, but the results haven't come yet. No, it, it's a frustrating one because we've definitely got a, a really quick car. Um, we struggled unfortunately with reliability at the start of the year um, we had a upgrade on the engine over winter we probably weren't quite in the position we wanted to be for Daytona and that had a knock-on effect to, to Sebring as well um, saying that the sister car actually ran trouble trouble free but we were extremely fast you know the pole in Daytona and I think had we could we have lasted we, we would have been fighting for the win but it's just been one of those where we've had the pace and we're just missing out um, 
and I think there's definitely that tension, you know, and pressure that you know we need that win. I still believe it's going to come. I thought it was going to come last year, quite honestly. I think we're quick enough, but again, IMS is so competitive, and it's very different to racing in Europe in the sense that you can have the quickest car all weekend. You can do a perfect job, but it can come down to strategy, and it can be someone just makes. I'm going to say lucky but you make your own luck they just make take a gamble on the strategy and, and the way it works with the safety cars and that you know if they boxed 15 laps into the race they could be last if a safety car comes out on lap 16 they're in the lead of the race once everybody's cycled through their pit yep. stops so you know we're working hard there's still a long way for that project to go I mean I'm, I really enjoy being part of it actually because winning's great and I love winning you know, that's what I do this for but actually to, to grow with the project and see the progress we're making and, and I guess people probably don't see that from outside but the, the issue we're having is our competitors are also making progress yep. you know the Penske's haven't stood still you know they were first year last year and they had a tough season as well and, and they've made a, a big step forward this year so you know whilst we're making these big gains other people are as well Next up for IMSA is going to be Watkins Glen. That's a big race. Before then, of course, you've got Le Mans 24 hours. That's a big race. You've always been a driver who's been motivated by those big occasions on these. I say big. This is a physically big track. But just talking before the press record about uh, just how big a track in a different way now uh, with the Mazda on the Michelins, Watkins Glen is. Yeah, we, we were testing there the other week, and I love Watkins. I love a lot of the American tracks, actually. I'm a, I really... I'm a bit of an old school driver in the sense I like them fast tracks. You know, I don't want to say I like dangerous tracks. You know, you know, I'm all for safety, but I like those tracks that punish you if you make a mistake. You've got Mid Ohio where it qualified on pole, but it's one of those tracks I feel as a driver you can take risk and gain lap time. It can go wrong. It can go seriously wrong. And and Watkins now, it's so fast. You know, I was amazed. We we did a sim session. I said to the guys and girls we've got Lena involved um, sorry Lena I said to them you know track grip's way too high there's just too much grip they said yeah you, you're still a second off what we predict I thought okay alright and then we got there in the test day and they were spot on you know and the track grip was amazing it's going to be so much fun um, I can't wait literally you know as a driver that's what, that's what we do this for you know it's going to be a tough race I'm not going to say we're going to be the quickest car but still the enjoyment of just putting the car on the limit round there is going to be amazing final question and it's a totally unfair question because I like those here at Le Mans you've always loved this place you're with a fabulous team Riz- Rizzi Competizione GTE car and something you've told us this has been something you've been wanting to do would you trade a decent result here in this car against that first win for Mazda oh that's vicious isn't yeah, it yeah that's a horrible question that's a horrible question because I, I can't keep anyone happy there can I no comment no comment no, I mean that's a tough one I think you know I'd, we'd love to get a result here and you know I think we're a little bit up against it the GTE field is phenomenal this year I mean I've always followed GTE I'm, you know I'm not just saying that because I'm suddenly in it but this year I feel like it's also taken a bit of a step up oh yeah um, you know, I was looking down the, the field earlier and I was like, you know, occasionally you have cars that you can just say, OK, we should be ahead of them. And I was looking down, you're reading the names and you're thinking, hold on a second, there's not a bad car here. Um, but the Mazda thing, that's just ongoing. And like I say, well, I've put so much into that project that 
I think a win there is going to be something amazing. And you know, so many people have put so much effort and time and money and resources that you know we we need to get that win. So I've avoided your question beautifully. <laughs> You've been trained well. But two great big races, fantastic racetracks of most remarkably different sorts. Um, what's next after this? Spa? Um, that's a good question. So immediately after this, I'm back to America. Then from America, I'm back to Le Mans. And then Le Mans, I, I actually have Watkins. Then Watkins, I go back to Spa for the Spa test. From there, I go straight back to America for most sport. And then from most sport, I assume... I might have a few days at home before we get into Spa, so fairly well, busy. You. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to check in just to, to make sure the wife is still living at home. She hasn't moved out, but fortunately, I have a very understanding wife. Oh, don't we all? Don't we all? For now, good luck with this. Uh, it, you're right; it's a hell of a field. Seventeen cars. Uh, it's just knee deep in talent. Uh, fabulous teams, fabulous cars, fabulous drivers, all of them, and good to be an outlier. Yeah. I think we're, you know, we're going to keep our heads down and hopefully surprise a few people. Because, like I say, first time this car's really run is this morning, you know. And and I think we're the only um, we're the only private team out there as well. All the rest is manufacturing money. So wouldn't that be a, a bit of an upset to go take the fight to a few of the big boys? That would be a hell of a headline. For now, Oliver Jarvis, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. And that was inside the sports car paddock for the week of June third definitely looking forward to next week's episode as we get into Le Mans week and can't wait to find out what Graham and Steven might have for us in terms of quality interviews as well if this is one of your first times listening to our show we definitely welcome your feedback on those within the sports car world that you would love for us to interview and also if you're getting to know the little Marshall Pruitt podcast if you check out marshallpruittpodcast.com which is also somewhat new, that has 500-plus episodes. Everything we have ever generated is sitting there waiting for you. You can browse them individually or go through the various categories by show names and use the search function in the top right of the new marshallpruittpodcast.com site to just try a bunch of oddities, see what comes up. Type in old stuff, new stuff, legends of the sport, audio features, both in-car and ambient, you name it. All kinds of good stuff waiting for you there. All right. I am the Marshall Pruitt, and this is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Thank you for listening. <laughs>